And the wheat is gathered into barns. And the chaff is blown away. And so, as we consider and continue in the book of Revelation, I want you to, uh, I just want to remind you of my understanding of the book of Revelation, simply because it is a, a, a little bit, well, a lot bit different from perhaps what is the popular um, or what is more, most commonly um, spoken of when we come to the book of Revelation, as, as you may know. Um, there's going to be a new movie coming out. It's actually an old movie called Left Behind. And um, it's on the Left Behind series of books. And um, hold up. Anyways, if you ever go see that movie, I don't hold that view. All right? I know that's really popular. But, um, and so I am not teaching the book of Revelation from such a perspective. I do not believe that the book of Revelation is limited to the last seven years of history. I believe rather the book of Revelation um, includes and teaches us how to live between the advents. It teaches us how to live between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. To always be looking for and hastening the day that he will come and that he will return. I believe that the book of Revelation glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ above all things. That its purpose is not for us to try to figure out all the details of the events and that when we see things happening in, in Israel or we see things happening in uh, Iraq or Russia or any of those things, try to find a one-to-one relationship in the book of Revelation. I believe that the book of Revelation is for all peoples of all time. There will come a day, however, when the harvest will be reaped. There will come a day when Christ will come in glory and there will come a time when Christ will bring about all of the Father's plans, all of the purposes, all of the promises and nothing will be left undone. And so as we continue in the book of Revelation chapter 14, we are... Let me just kind of bring you up to date with some, some context. The, the book of what we've been seeing is we've been seeing this panorama of church history, if you will. Maybe that's not the right phrase because that confuses it with another view of the book of Revelation. But we're seeing a panorama of the of the church age where the church lives between the advents from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. In chapter 12, beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, we saw the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. We saw the victorious overcoming of Christ over Satan. We saw Satan defeat, or we saw Satan defeated by Christ. We saw the wrath of the dragon, who is called Satan. His wrath is aroused because he sought to kill the Christ, but was unable to. Christ was taken into glory. Satan was defeated. And because of his defeat and his inability to kill the Christ, he focused his wrath against the people of God. And we see then in chapter 13 the principal agents of the dragon's wrath are, is typified or um, 
illustrated by two gruesome beasts. The first beast who came up from out of the sea was a beast that we depicted as persecution. Certainly in John's day, this would have been depicted by the Roman Empire, who was at times brutal against the people of God. Of course, we, we know of the persecutions under Nero, but Nero was certainly not the last. Perhaps he was the worst. I don't know. Some people would say Decius was, was much worse, or Domitian. But eventually the Roman Empire rose and fell, and another empire came along. And there were always times of great trial for the people of God. The second beast we saw came up out of the land. He is much more, not nearly as ferocious, but equally as dangerous, for he is the beast of false religion and false teaching. He teaches everybody to follow the first beast. After all, the first beast, first beast is powerful. And people say, who, can, who is like the beast? Who can, who can make war with the beast? And this false prophet makes the words of the first beast sound plausible. You've heard that before. You've heard politicians get up who do the most outrageous things and they get their spin doctors up there and spin it to make it sound like, oh, that does kind of make sense. We see that now. We see gross and horrific immoralities. And people will get on the news and spin it so you can kind of think, well, you know what, maybe that's not so bad after all. Makes people, the second beast makes people worship the, the first beast. And we've seen this throughout the book of Revelation, right? Chapter 2 and chapter 3. What do we see were the two things facing the seven churches? False teaching and persecution. Those were the two things they faced. And so we see that story repeated over and over again through the book of Revelation. And in the midst of all of this, somebody might ask, well, what about the people of God? Well, in chapter 14, we began to see that God protects His people. Not from, not from every harm, but from ultimate spiritual harm. And we see the protective care of the Lamb towards His own. Even those who are overcome by the beast are victorious because they belong to the Lamb, and the Lamb keeps them. And, he, and not one of His are lost. And no one is able to snatch them out of His hand. And as the Lamb protects His own, we see the situation on earth as the proclamation of the Gospel goes forth, represented by three angels. We saw the proclamation go forth to fear God and give Him glory. Because the hour of His judgment is near. And then we see, as the proclamation of the Gospel goes forth, calling men to repent and give God glory, we also then begin to see that Fallen, fallen in Babylon, this world system has nothing. It is coming to an end, it is collapsing, it, has a, it is of no value whatsoever. And where are you placing your trust? If it is in this world system, it is coming to an end. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And then we saw the fate of those who would not fear God and give Him glory. And they were cast into eternal punishment.
That's where we've been in the book of Revelation, beginning with this series of uh, visions that John has. Where we're going to go today, by way of preview, is now we're going to see the consummation of the age. We're going to see Jesus gather his people. We're going to see Jesus gather his people for salvation, and he's also going to reap the harvest of the wicked for judgment. So this all fits, makes perfect sense. We see the birth, life, resurrection, ascension of Christ. We see the defeat of Satan, his war against the people of God, the protection of God's people by the land, and now we see Christ coming in judgment. To bring about the consummation of the age, to bring about his promises, to bring about his purposes. It is a depiction of the second coming over which the Son of Man presides. It is important, verses 14 through 20 of chapter 14 are important to us. Because we need to ask ourselves the question, How do I live in light of the reality that the consummation of the age is, a, is true. In other words, Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. That is the truth. It is an undeniable truth. How do we, are we living in light of that reality? What are we doing with our lives? What are we doing as, as individuals? What are we doing as a church? Are we wasting our time spinning our wheels, following after frivolity and empty things? Or are we giving our lives for the purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is eternal, even in the, sake, even in the face of the two beasts? The bottom line is this. The harvest will come. The curtain of this drama will close. There will be a the end of this age. And Christ, our Lord, presides over it. So, let's go ahead. Let's read. I'm only going to cover a couple of verses today. But let's go over these, these fascinating and powerful and important passages of Scripture. Beginning in chapter 14, verse 14. Then I looked. And behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar and called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth. And threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. And blood came up from the winepress up to the horses' bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Verse 7, we read, To repent and give God glory. For the hour of his judgment is near, and now in verse 14, the hour of his judgment has come. 
And we begin by looking at John. John has this vision. It says, I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And here is the judge, one, sitting like the son of man. This is an obvious allusion to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. If you have not been with us in our study or you have been napping through our study, you know that we are using the Old Testament as our interpretive guide to understand the book of Revelation because we believe in that Scripture interprets Scripture. And so we don't look to CNN for our interpretive, as our interpretive guide of the book of Revelation. We look to Scripture. And we've been learning that the book of Revelation is inundated with Old Testament references. One commentator who I respect greatly says, Every verse in the book of Revelation has an Old Testament allusion. The more I'm going through the book of Revelation, the more I think that statement is holding true. And this statement has an obvious allusion. Back in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient days and was presented before him. And to him, that is the one who was coming on the clouds of glory, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And John looks and he sees one coming on the clouds. One like a son of man who is a king. We also should not forget that in Matthew chapter 24 verse 30, Jesus Himself says, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with the power and glory. And so in Daniel we see that He is the one who receives the kingdom from the ancients of days, and Jesus is the one who comes on the clouds of glory. We also uh, see in Acts chapter 9 I'm sorry, Acts chapter 1 verse 9 through 11 and after he had said these things he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight and as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going behold two men in white clothing stood beside them and they also said men of Galilee why do you stand looking into the sky this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven and now John says, I saw one like the Son of Man coming on the clouds, and he had a crown on his head and a sickle in his hand. He is the one who, Daniel says, received the kingdom from the ancient of days. It is an eternal kingdom. It is a kingdom over every tribe, tongue, and nation. It is a kingdom without end. And he has a crown. He is the king. He has a sharp sickle as the one who harvests the earth. So let's take a look at this harvest. As we see that Jesus is coming on the clouds, we see this angelic messenger come to this one who is described as one like a son of man. This angelic messenger comes and announces that it is time to reap. It is time to harvest. The time of harvest has come. And now we address 
the first of two interpretive matters that we are going to have to work our way through to make sense of this passage of Scripture. And our first interpretive issue is this. Is Jesus portrayed as subordinate to an angel? And you can see why I would ask that question. Because an angel comes forth and says, put forth your sickle and reap. By the way, this is an imperative. An angel, if this Son of Man is Christ, how is it that an angel can make a command of Jesus? I think that's an important question that we need to address. Is this portraying Jesus as subordinate to an angel? Well, no. And I could just end there. Jesus is not subordinate to any angelic being. But I don't think this text um, requires that we, um, does not require that Jesus is being subordinate to an angel. In other words, if an angel is making a command on Christ and Christ has to obey what some angel tells him to do. I don't think that this text requires that understanding. In apocalyptic literature, angels are often messengers. Well, that's even just what angels do. They're messengers. That's what they do. They, they convey messages. And you'll note that this angel comes from the temple. He comes from the presence of the Father in heaven. He comes from the t- presence of the Father and communicates to the Son it is now time to reap the harvest. We should not be too surprised by this. You'll recall that when Jesus walked the earth in regards to the time of His second coming and the time of His bringing about all His promises and purposes people always want to know the when question, right? When's this going to happen? You know, what's... And nobody and Jesus says, nobody knows the day or the hour. So I know we try to figure out the month. Nobody knows the day or the hour. It's not the angels in heaven, not even the Son of Man, but my Father who is in heaven. And so we have, I believe, an angel coming from the presence of the Father, communicating from the Father to the Son of Man, to Christ. Now is the time. The harvest is ripe. The grain is to be reaped. And it is now time. And we know that Jesus is subordinate to the Father. When I say that, I do not mean that he is less, lesser in essence. For all of you, for ours, there is no ontological difference between the two. But they are different. They are same in essence, but they are different in function. And Jesus submits himself to the will of the Father. You, of course, see that throughout the Gospels, but you can certainly look at John chapter 5, verses 19 through 30. And Jesus said, Only the Father knows the day or the hour. And now what we are seeing is the Father communicates to the Son, Now is the time. It's time to reap. It is time to bring about your purposes. Our next interpretive issue then is what kind of harvest is this? 
So interpretive issue number two. What kind of harvest is this? There are probably four or five different um, understandings of this type of harvest. I'm not going to go into them. I'm just going to really address two of the more common and I think more reasonable. What kind of harvest is this one where the Son of Man puts down his sickle and reaps the earth? Here's what's clear in Scripture. Let me give you another little uh, tool for interpreting Scripture. First one, Scripture interprets slow. You know the first one, right? Context, context, context. That's number one. Somewhere else, factor number one is Scripture interprets Scripture. Another thing we do is that clear passages of Scripture guide us in understanding the less clear passages of Scripture. So if you have an unclear passage of Scripture, you're not quite sure what it means. Is there a passage of Scripture that is definitely clear? If so, the clear helps us to understand the unclear. Well, here's what's clear. What's clear is in verses 17 through 20, it is definitely judgment of the wicked. Definitely, without a doubt, judgment of the wicked. And I'll get to that, but just in case you're questioning that. Um, why of the wrath of God is used without exclusion in the Bible of God's judgment on the wicked. So 17 through 20, very clear, judgment of the wicked. But what about 14 and 15? What judgment is this? What harvest is this? Two understandings of this, or two popular understandings are, number one, these are the same harvest of the wicked, just seen from two different perspectives. And that wouldn't be unusual in the book of Revelation to see the same thing from two different, explained two different ways. That's our first um, possibility. Like I said, there's probably four or five possibilities. But that's our first, I think, pretty common and fairly popular one. That the harvest of verses 14 and 15 and the harvest of 17 through 20 are the same thing. The harvest of the wicked um, for judgment. And we know it had to be wicked to 17 through 20 is the harvest of the wicked. Here's the second possibility. The second possibility is that verse 17 through 20 is the harvest of the wicked. We know that for certain. And then the harvest of verse 14 and 15 is the harvest of the righteous. I'm more persuaded by option number two. That 17 through 20 is definitely of the wicked... But I think the 14 through 15 is a harvest of God's people for salvation. And so we see the Son of Man come and He harvests the, uh, the people of God for salvation. And of course this takes us back to passages in, uh, or parables that Jesus spoke, that there would come a time where the wheat and the tares would grow up together, but a time would come where there would be a harvest, and the wheat and the tares would be separated and gathered into barns, and the wheat would be gathered into barns, and the tares would be taken and judged and burned up, and that there would be a, a dragnet, and many types of fish would be caught, but they would be separated at the end of the age, and the good fish from the bad fish. And that there would come a time where the righteous and the unrighteous and the, and the sheep and the goats would be separated at the end of the age when Christ comes again. That there would be this, these two harvests, if you will.
And we'll see this as we continue on through the book of Revelation, especially when we get into chapter 20. Once again, we're going to see the judgment of the wicked and the judgment of the righteous. And so we see here, now let me just kind of bring this all together. What we see is that the Son of Man comes on the cloud of glory and he begins to reap this wheat harvest. We know it's a wheat harvest because this word ripe in uh, verse 15 literally means it's dry, which would indicate, which was a euphemism or a way to describe a wheat harvest. And so this is a wheat harvest. Jesus comes and he reaps this harvest. The full number of the elect has come, basically. Here's what's happened. The full number. The, the last of the saints who will be persecuted that we read in chapter 5. That last saint has been persecuted. That last saint has given his life. The last Gentile, the last believer has repented and given their lives for the glory of Christ. And at that moment when that individual said, yes, I will follow the Lord wherever he will go, that is the last individual. Eventually the harvest is ripe. The curtain closes and the consummation of the age it comes. And Jesus talks about this over and over and over there will come a day when the curtain is drawn and that's it that's what we're seeing so let me draw some summary and application Jesus will come just as he said Jesus will come just as he said in accordance with the will of the Father do you think of that time ever do you ever think of the time where the clouds will be ripped open and Christ will return? Do you think about that or are we so wrapped up in our in the minutia of life that we fail to remember that Christ is going to bring about the end of this age? In what ways are you living for that reality? In what ways are we as a church living for that reality? John Piper wrote a book, I think it's still back in the the foyer, it might have been borrowed and never returned, I don't want to say stolen, I don't want to ascribe that to somebody. It might have been stolen, it might have just been taken and never returned and sitting on somebody else's bookshelf. Anyways. It's a great book. It's called Don't Waste Your Life. I would recommend everybody read Don't Waste Your Life. It's a short book. It's an easy book to read. And it calls us to give our lives for things that really matter. Piper is not saying you can't go be on a softball league or a bowling league or you can't ride bicycles. Otherwise, I'd reject that book. That's heresy. He's not saying that. He's saying that you need to give your life. We need to be people who give our lives to the things that are really, really important. The back cover has the most wonderful example, I think. He says... A couple, they retire and they, they, they live their lives by the seashore. They go out and collect shells. And what are they going to do at the end of their lives when they stand before the Lord saying, I collected really nice seashells? You wasted your life. Do we live in light of the reality that Christ will sum up all things? Jesus is going to come when the harvest is ripe. Do you long for that day? Peter tells us to long for that day. 
Do you long for that day when things are going well, when you get a raise at work, when you get a brand new car, when everything is going well? Do you long for that day? Do you only long for that day when things are horrible? Or do you long for that day every day? I pray we be people who live our lives with value while we are here longing and hastening for that time when Christ will come and redeem us and glorify these bodies and we will be glorified with Him forever and ever. And the stain and the scourge of sin will no longer mar this earth. This earth will be renewed, you and I will be renewed, and we will live in a place where there is no ISIS, and there is no North Korea, there is no Pol Pot, there is no Nero, there is no Dacius. There is Christ. And the redeemed. Do you long for that day? Today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. God will save His people. Even those who, who succumb to the threats of the beast and who are overcome by the, by the power of the beast will be given refuge with the Lamb who lives forever and ever. I believe that this is a harvest of the righteous. And then in verses 17 through 20, we see another harvest. This one is a great harvest. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, one who has the power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle, and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. This is definitely an allusion over to Joel chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. Let me read that. Let me read that passage, and you will see how John uses this, path, this, this verse from Joel. Joel chapter 3, verse 12. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge to his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. But in your sickle and reap, the heart of the grape harvest is ripe. And there will come a day also where the grape harvest is ripe. And wickedness will have, will have reached its fullness. And so John now presents to us the other possible fate of humanity. The first fate of humanity is to be reaped by the Lord and be brought into salvation and everlasting joy of Christ. But the other fate is the harvest of the wicked. And we see this angel come out. He has the authority over fire. This is a reference back to chapter 8, verses 3 and 5, where we saw an angel come out from, from the the fire on the altar and threw fire of the altar down to the earth. This, we understood, was the prayers of the saints or in response to the prayers of the saints who were crying out, how long? How long until you justify us? How long until you vindicate us? How long until 
our blood avenged. So we see the same fire, the same angel coming out from the fire. And again, this seems to be then in response to the prayers of the saints. Do you pray, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly? If you ever have, there will come a day where that prayer will be answered. This is a clear reference to the judgment of the wicked. As I said, this phrase, the winepress of the wrath of God, is always, exclusively, without without exception, always used for the, the judgment of the wicked. It is the great winepress of the wrath of God. And certainly, this alludes back to Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 through 3 and verse 6. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? The one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your enemies like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the wine trough alone. And from the people there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments and I stained all my garments. I trod down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath. I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. That is a frightening passage of scripture. It is one that we might be told if we are to grow our church or not to read. And yet there it is. There will come a day where this will be a reality and we seek it not to frighten, we seek it not to condemn, we seek it to say because this is a reality. One day it will happen. And in grace and in mercy we are calling you right now to repent and call upon the name of the Lord. Repent and give God glory. Why? Because somebody is going to drink the cup of the wrath of God. Will it be you? Let me tell you, Christ has already drunk the cup of God's wrath. He drank it in full. He drank it to the dregs. He took it all down. And he bore the wrath of God on our behalf. Somebody will drink the wrath of God's cup. Will it be you or will you allow Christ, who's already drinking it on your behalf, This is a comprehensive judgment. It is one of those from all of the earth. And you can see where it talks about how the wine press is trodden outside the city. The blood came up from the wine press up to the horses' bridles for a distance of 200 stadia or up long, long ways. This is just a graphic picture of this is going to be a blood mess. The scriptures do not back away from the difficult, and nor do we. And this is going to be a bloody mess. And so there will come a day when the curtain will fall. There will come a day when Christ will reap the harvest of the righteous. And I pray that you are part of that harvest. I pray that you will be part of that. Because if not, there are only two destinies for people. We talked about that last week. John's very black and white, isn't he? John doesn't like ambiguity, and John does not know the color gray. That was not in his crayon box. 
Jan had the very limited crayon box, two colors, black and white. That's all he had. That's all he knew. He knew righteous and unrighteous. He knew Christ and Antichrist. He knew judgment and salvation. He knew the love of God and he knew being rejected by God. That's all he knew. And here we see there is salvation and there is judgment. That's it. There is no third, third possibility. There is no third way. So I'll conclude with this. John has presented two fates of mankind. And these are realities and we are not to take them lightly. We do not take the judgment of God lightly, nor do we take the salvation of God lightly. Because if we truly are the saved of the earth, then are we living in light of the Lords of Christ coming again to redeem his people? Neither of those are to be taken lightly. Here's the thing. Jesus will return. He will return. This is a... It's over and over and over again in the scriptures. Do we interpret the... Unclear with the clear. I don't know if there's any unclear things at all. Really clear. I'll come again. And I'll bring you to myself. Wheat and tares will grow up together. And then judgment will come. And the wheat and tares will be separated. Sheep and goats will be separated when I come again. Men of Galilee, why do you look in the sky? This Jesus who went up from you will return in just the same way. Jesus, in speaking with the Pharisees, they said, Are you the Christ? He said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man coming over the clouds of glory. They knew exactly what he was saying. They knew that he was referring to Daniel, saying, Yes, I am the one who has dominion from the angels of days, and I will come and judge the living and the dead. Are you the Christ? You bet I am. And I will come and judge you and everybody else. The righteous will be saved. And you Pharisees, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. The destiny of the lost is more fearful than any of us can imagine. Our sin has put us in enmity with God. This is how Paul describes us. You are enemies with God. You are by nature children of wrath. That's a horrific description. You are by nature. That's who you are. Oh, and if we stopped there, we would probably go, Oh, God, there is no hope for me, but we keep reading. But God, being rich in mercy, who loved us with a great love, has made us children of God by His grace. You are by nature children of wrath, but God has come and given us Jesus Christ to change your nature so that you are not a child of wrath, but a child of God. And if a child of God, heirs of God, you're not just a child of God, you're an heir. All of the promises of God are, are given to you. Those are two choices. I don't even know why there's a choice. Why is there anybody who would choose one or not choose the child of God thing. But they do. Jesus has come to save sinners. And Jesus has called us to be reconciled to God. Jesus has called us to be reconciled to God. And those who are reconciled will be, will be adopted into his family. Not just adopted and considered some child out there, for no, you will be adopted and you will be given and provided all the inheritance that God has promised. You are a co-heir with Christ. Wow. So that's where we're at. 
Christ defeats the, the dragon. The dragon persecutes the people of God. Even the people of God who are overcome by the dragon find safety and security in, with the Lamb. And then there will come a day where Christ will judge the earth. And those who are here on the earth will be saved and brought into glory with Him. And those who reject Him will be judged. So let's stand and let's pray. And I need to ask.